Have you ever been in the presence of someone that you consider great? Someone maybe as large as life itself. Maybe you wished you were in their shoes living their life, wondering what would it be like to be them. In our society, usually these people are, you know, movie stars, singers, famous people, athletes. Some people, when they get around, you know, their, their favorite movie star and they get close or something or they go to Hollywood and they, they see this person, it's almost like they're going to faint or they forget how to speak English and they can't string their words together because they're just so overwhelmed. Or maybe we might go to a hockey game and we'll wait hours after the game just for that chance, just for that slight chance that we could meet that person, we could get their autograph, we could get a selfie. I think behind this desire, maybe, is that maybe we want to be seen, we want to be recognized, for that person to maybe validate us, for us to feel special. When I was a kid, I loved playing basketball, and there was this player named Tim Duncan, really tall player, played for the Spurs, San Antonio Spurs, and I always wanted to go watch him live, but living in Alberta, and Texas is a long way from Alberta, I never had that chance. But I always, always thought as a kid, man, I'd love to go watch him play as a kid. But I do remember a time when I felt like I was in the presence of someone great. I remember the day clearly. I was in Bible college at the time. I was around the age of 20. As a person in the Bible college, I was in the pastoral kind of ministry aspect of the school. And they gave us a chance to go to uh, the conference for the denomination. And, uh, and so they said, you know, it's free, you can go, we'll drive you, and it's in Banff. And so it's like, well, I'm going to go to Banff for free. I mean, like, who's going to turn down a free offer to go to the mountains? But little did I know that when I went to this conference, there would be a speaker there that would capture my attention. I stopped thinking about the mountains. I stopped thinking about going for hikes. I stopped thinking about wanting to go to the restaurants. And... When I saw this speaker, his name was Carter Conlon, and maybe most of you probably don't have any idea who he is. He's more famous in charismatic circles, but he's the pastor of New York Times Square Church. Some of you might be familiar with the name of that church. It used to be run by David Wilkerson. David Wilkerson had a powerful ministry in New York. He went there in the 60s when New York had lots of crime and drugs, and he was there, and his heart was broken for what he saw. And so he started a church with a ministry to the gangs, to the mar- those in the margins, to the poor, a very powerful ministry. And Carter Conlon took over for David Wilkerson in the 2000s. And when I was in Bath and I saw that he was there, I wasn't awestruck, but I was just very surprised and also delighted. And I remember when he spoke, there was, there was a weight to what he said. There was an anointing of the Holy Spirit that I had not experienced before from a preacher it's almost like his words had physical weight. I don't, I don't know really how to describe it. When he would speak, it, it would feel like, like it would impress upon you, but also give you life. And being at this conference, there's probably around, I would say, give or take, probably 100 pastors or so. And I remember thinking, Stephen, you're never probably going to have this chance in your life again to talk to this man. So you might as well take it. Maybe he won't want to talk to you. Maybe he'll be too tired. Maybe he wants just to go to his room and go away. So, me, I went and I approached him, and he ended up talking to me for like 20 minutes. He took time out of his busy schedule 
just to talk with me. I mean, I was a nobody. I was just a Bible college student, just some young, arrogant, kind of 20-year-old kind of kid who, you know, thinks he's going to change the world kind of thing. And here's this pastor of this gigantic church with this worldwide ministry who takes time out of his schedule just to sit with me and talk with me and encourage me. And it was so interesting as I was talking to him, he didn't come across as this big shot pastor of a mega church. He just was very humble, very caring, wanted to hear my story, wanted to know how he could pray for me. He pointed my attention towards Christ. He reorientated my vision towards Christ. It was a special moment. God doesn't care about the fame, the accolades that so often we go after. And I thank for that Carter pointed me towards Christ. This morning, the sermon title is, He is Greater. He is Greater. I don't know where you're at in your journey, that they disappear, or that they magically go away, but I think if we remember his greatness, it helps ground us in his faithfulness. It helps keep us steady. It's so easy to get off kilter. When I was younger, there'd be so many times where I would get very emotional. I was a very emotional young man. And I remember I feel God's presence and I would think, oh, okay, God's affirming me in what I'm doing. And then I realized his presence was there to ground me, to help me walk in groundedness and faithfulness. What are we captivated by this morning? Are we captivated by Jesus or perhaps maybe we're captivated by something else? maybe even obsessed. I mean, I can think of politics, sports. I think in the States, you know, like I played some basketball in the States for some tournaments, and I remember uh, going when I was in college to my first college game in the States to play, and like the, like the, the stands were like absolutely packed. And in Canada, you'll never see that usually. We're just like, there was not like a seat in the place that were empty, and the people were just yelling and going crazy. And it's like, this is nuts. But, you know, what are we captivated by? Are we captivated by Jesus? Let's pray. Father, we come to you in humility, knowing that it's so easy to be captivated by other things. Father, speak through the scriptures this morning by the power of your spirit, by your Holy Spirit, so we may encounter you. Jesus, reveal yourself to us. Change us, focus our eyes, reorient our beings, our bodies, our souls, our minds to you. Change our hearts, Lord. Give us a hunger for you, a passion for you. Give us a passion for the things that you care about, Lord, for those who are broken, those who are hungry, those who are in distress, Father. Give us a hunger for your word, for your scriptures, for prayer. Lord, we welcome you. Form us into your image in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So if you've got your Bibles, I encourage you to open up to Luke 3. We're going to continue on where Tamil was last. 22. Now, the people were waiting expectantly. And all of them were questioning in their hearts whether John might be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is more powerful than I. I am not worthy to untie the strap of his sandal. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing shovel is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with fire that never goes out. Then along with many other exhortations, he proclaimed good news to the people. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of Herodias, his brother's wife, 
and all the evil things he had done, Herod added this to everything else. He locked up John in prison. When all the people were baptized, Jesus also was baptized. As he was praying, heaven opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in a physical appearance like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Two weeks ago, I thought Tamil did an excellent job speaking about how this scene would have elicited excitement. We know at this time the Jewish people were looking for a Messiah. They're looking for a Savior, someone to break the chains of Rome, someone to restore Israel to its rightful place. They were waiting for Yahweh to make his move. And so when John is going around the wilderness and he's proclaiming about the gospel, the good news, and he's quoting from Isaiah, prepare ye the way of the Lord, there's this kind of fervor that can rise up in the Jewish people. For 400 years, 400 long, agonizing years of silence. No prophetic voice. All they had were the writings of the Old Testament scriptures. But they remembered, they hung on to this promise of a Messiah, of a deliverer. Do we know what the silence is like? A long period of desperation. Waiting, waiting, waiting. Hoping, hoping. And maybe losing hope, gaining hope, losing hope. They were waiting for a king. And here John comes preaching in the wilderness. And he's speaking with power and conviction. And I could... You can almost feel it in the crowd, the people kind of their blood beginning to boil and saying, maybe God is with this one. Maybe God is going to do something through John. And we have little conception of what this desperation would look like. I'm not sure about you, but I have a hard enough time waiting at red lights. My wife can tell you sometimes when the red lights on, I'll like count down in my head. I'll be like, okay, is it going to be now? Is it going to be now? And then I'm ready to go. I mean, I, like, I have a hard enough time waiting for just a light to turn green. And I remember one time what felt like desperation to me it's when I asked Yvette to date me, and she said, I'll think about it. <laughs> you know, as a young man, that's not usually the response you want to hear. It was kind of like, oh, okay, this is going to be interesting. And I remember she took, I think it was either like a week or two weeks to get back to me, and I felt like I was dying inside. I was like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? I'm so anxious. I'm so nervous. But yet, the Jewish people have been waiting for generation upon generation upon generation they were desperate, ready for something to change. And we actually see this desperation in history of, recorded by Josephus of failed messiahs. These were so-called messiahs, people that claimed to be a messiah, but they weren't the real deal. They were just a false messiah. We have records of Judas of Galilee, Simon of Perea, and more. And what these men would do is they would kind of gather Jewish people around them and be, I'm the Messiah, I'm the one who's going to overthrow Rome. And so then these people would kind of gather around them, they get ready, and then what would Rome come and do? Just crush them, crucify them. The followers would often be killed, and this would happen over and over and over again. The desperation for freedom was very real and palpable. People were willing to die for freedom from Rome. I can imagine them waiting on the words that come from John's lips. Is he the one? Is he the one who's going to bring God's kingdom? Are we finally going to be free? 
This morning, the first point is Jesus' identity is greater, is greater. Luke 3, 15 to 16. Now the people were waiting expectantly, and all of them were questioning in their hearts whether John might be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water. But one who is more powerful than I is coming. I'm not worthy to untie the straps of his sandals. It seems John maybe heard them murmuring in the crowd, maybe heard someone say, oh, is John, is John the Messiah? And John, knowing that he's not the Messiah, knows that, well, he's probably got to put an end to this. And so what does he say? He says, someone more powerful than I is coming. So much greater, so much more powerful that I'm not worthy to untie the strap of a sandal. You must remember the context of the statement. Who is John? John is the last of the prophets before the coming Messiah. He is speaking the words of Yahweh for the first time in 400 years of silence. He's the last prophetic, prophetic voice in the line of the Old Testament. In Luke 7, 28, Jesus says of John, I tell you, among those born of women, no one is greater than John, but the least in the kingdom is greater than he. Jesus is saying, John is the greatest of the prophets before the coming of the kingdom. But now everything is changing. John, the last great prophet of the tradition of the Old Testament, is saying he's not even worthy to untie the strap of a sandal. Do you know who unties the strap of a sandal in the Jewish culture in the first century? A slave. A slave would untie the strap of a sandal when a Jewish person would come into the home. They would untie the strap of the sandal, and then they'd take the sandal off, and they would wash the foot of that person. But a Jewish slave would not do this. Only a Gentile slave would do this. The Jews saw this as disgusting work. Why would you touch the feet? That's where all the dirt, all the muck of the world has come in. They would not even make a Jewish slave, a fellow Jewish slave, do this. This would be seen as too low. But here John is not even talking about cleaning Jesus' feet. He's talking about touching the mere strap of his sandal. John the baptizer, the greatest born among the prophets, before the coming kingdom is not even worthy to touch Jesus' sandal. Do we see Jesus is greater? Do we see his identity in all its splendor? I love that video talking about the splendor and the majesty of God. It's easy for me to stand up here and talk to you about Jesus and say that God, Jesus is God, but do we understand this reality, grapple with this reality? I mean, we are finite human beings. We have beginning to end. We return to the dust. I'm not sure how much John knew at this moment who Jesus was. It seems he has some idea. He knows that Jesus is the Messiah. But John knows that Jesus is of infinite worth. Do we realize this, that Jesus is a king of truth, of righteousness, of love, of purity and holiness? John the baptizer sees how tiny he is. John is captivated by Jesus. Are we captivated? Or perhaps have we lost a sense of wonder? Maybe to you, has Jesus become a person to study or to think about? Does he captivate you? I remember going through seminary and, and reading, and I did a lot of reading before seminary, and like wanting to understand who is Jesus? What are the Gospels? What does this actually mean? And I remember I would read and read and read these big books and thinking about it and thinking about it. And it 
slowly became an intellectual exercise. My mind wanted to go after Jesus, but if you looked at my heart, my soul, my body, it didn't want to follow. My mind had become just gripped. It had become just an intellectual exercise. And don't get me wrong, we need to love the Lord with our minds. That's part of being a Christian. But also following him with the heart and the soul. That for me is much harder. It's easy for me to be gripped and to captivated by other things. The thing is, Jesus doesn't actually force us to follow him, but he calls us to follow him. He offers us an open hand and says, follow me. That's harder. Perhaps this morning you've lost your fascination. I encourage you, seek the Father. Spend time in prayer, maybe some time in solitude, asking the Holy Spirit to fill you afresh. We hope here at Evergreen that we will be a Jesus-centered church. But I hope that we'd also be captivated by Jesus, grounded in Jesus. Jesus has called us, humans made in his image, to be in covenant with him. He's conquered death, sin, and the grave. And this is so radical. Yet often the gospel that sometimes we present can feel mild and meek. And sometimes it can be just be about getting to heaven. And we can forget his greatness. It can become just an intellectual fact instead of something that captivates us, something that actually grabs at us. I'm reminded from the famous line from C.S. Lewis in Narnia. I loved reading those books as a kid and teenager. And C.S. Lewis describes Aslan, who he uses as a metaphor for Jesus like this, in this dialogue. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie. And no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what, Mr. what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. He is I, the king, I tell you. Second point this morning I want to talk about is Jesus' baptism is greater, is greater than John's. Luke 3, 16a, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John distinguishes his baptism of water with Jesus' baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire. John is saying, I'm using human means, I'm using water, something that we use in our culture to baptize you, to help bring in some kind of cleansing, but Jesus will use the Holy Spirit and fire. He will use divine fire. I believe John is speaking about what will happen in the book of Acts and Pentecost. Now, I want to be forward, there are some scholars who do not believe that this is what John the Baptist is referencing, and there are others that do. But I believe Luke, when he wrote about the baptism of fire, for the first time was perhaps thinking of what he would write in Acts 2, 1-4. Acts 2, 1-4, when the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were staying. They saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each one of them. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them. We see the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 comes upon the early church and that fire of the Holy Spirit rests upon them and gives them the gift of tongues so the gospel can be proclaimed in people's mother's tongue. 
Here in Jerusalem at this time was the Feast of Pentecost and there were being tons of people there. And now the believers are speaking with boldness the gospel. Jesus' baptism is much greater. When I baptize someone in church, it just functions as a sign, as a symbol. I'm baptizing with water. I don't have any inherent power in me. I can't change someone by myself. But when the Holy Spirit indwells, when he baptizes, he works, he refines, he moves for the purpose of his kingdom, for the purpose of the gospel. And sometimes I know that this phrase, baptism of the Holy Spirit, can bring up kind of uncomfortable conversations. Lots of people differ on things. And all I want to say is that this is word baptism here just literally means immerse, cleanse, dip. God wants us to be immersed in him, to be filled with his Holy Spirit, like we hear in Acts. And then we're talking about Jesus' fire in the Old Testament. It's something that is used by God for a variety of means. God sends fire to burn up sacrifices. God also uses his fire in the burning bush. When it burns up, it's not consumed, but it is meant to show Moses that God is there. God's fire doesn't always bring destruction, but he can use it as a sign to draw others. And fire is used to refine, to refine gold, to bring out the impurities. The fire of the Holy Spirit is a good thing in the believer's life. But God's fire is also a dangerous thing. God's fire does and can bring utter destruction. Luke 3, 17. His winnowing shovel is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barns, but the chaff he will burn away with fire that never goes out. John points that Jesus is the judge and that his fire will burn away the chaff which contaminates his church. In the farming practices of the time, someone would have like a a big wooden fork and they would put that fork into the wheat or the grain and they would throw up that grain. And what would happen is, as the wind was going by, the heavier wheat would fall to the ground and the wind would take the chaff and blow it away. And sometimes they would use a manual fan. There would be manpower to do this. But they would take that chaff and they would gather it up and they would burn it. It was useless. Daryl Bach, a scholar, says, Jesus is ready to divide among the people. Just as wheat is saved for the storehouse, so so those who draw near to Jesus will be spared. But also just as chaff is tossed to the wind, gathered and burned, so will be the fate of those who refuse him. Jesus separates between people and the winnowing fork is in his hand already. This picture indicates not only a separation within humanity, but a cleansing up of the threshing floor. His purging brings decisive judgment. When we believe this, sorry, when we read this, we need to think of the book of Acts 2, not only because of the reference of the fire of tongues, but because of the feast of Pentecost. What does the feast of Pentecost mean? It's the feast of the harvest. It's a feast when you would bring in the harvest from the year and you would separate the good from the bad. You would take that which is good and you would put it in a storehouse and throw away the bad. I know this idea of fire and judgment is not one we like to talk about today because it's it's difficult, it's uncomfortable. But we can't ignore passages that speak of judgment. Jesus speaks about it multiple times. Earlier in this chapter, John the baptizer himself uses the image of fire in Luke 3, 7-9. He then said to the crowds who came to be baptized, Brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, Therefore, produce fruit 
consistent with repentance. And don't start saying to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. In verse 9, the axe is already at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. John, like the Old Testament prophets, doesn't mince words. There's a judgment to come, and Jesus is the judge of the judgment. It's an uncomfortable thing to talk about, and I don't particularly like thinking about it, but it's in the scriptures from beginning to end, Old Testament to New Testament. Even in the Nicene Creed, the universal creed that's held among Christians, it speaks of a judgment to come. It's difficult in the age of tolerance, but there will be a separating of the wheat from the chaff. The wheat from the chaff. The axe will cut down trees. Third point this morning, Jesus' gospel is greater. It's greater. Luke 3, 21 to 22. When all the people were baptized, Jesus also was baptized. As he was praying, heaven opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in a physical appearance like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. The good news of Jesus is greater than any other good news. A few sermons ago, I talked about the gospel of Caesar and how Caesar would make a proclamation go forth. It would be his birthday, or he would win a battle, or he would talk about the peace that he's brought to the empire. And here, the gospel of Jesus is a different good news. First, our king is a king who sees us, who sees our pain, sees our difficulties. Let me ask, why did Jesus need to be baptized in verse 21? Wasn't Jesus perfect? Wasn't he holy? Wasn't he sinless? Wasn't he perfect? He doesn't need to be baptized. He was doing this to identify himself with Israel. He was becoming part of Israel. He was entering our brokenness, our humanness, identifying as one of us, taking on us so that we could be redeemed. Jesus is not a king like Caesar who's off in his palace, who's far away, but he actually enters into where we are. And he enters into the waters of baptism. Second, this gospel is better because our king is the true son of God, bringing new creation, bringing new life. Here, Jesus prays, and the Holy Spirit comes on him like a dove. This is the inbreaking of new creation. Jesus here is saying this is something new starting. This is the beginning of the renewal of humanity and creation. It's because the image of the dove has specific significance. Nicholas Perrin notes in his commentary, Jewish interpretive tradition, which held that at the cusp of creation, the spirit hovered over the primordial chaos as a dove. In this case, the spirit's comparison to the dove signals that Jesus Baptism stands to usher in a new and better and final creation. If you remember the beginning of Genesis, God's spirit hovers over the waters in Genesis 1. Before God brings order to the universe, before he creates, his spirit here is hovering on Jesus, signaling a new creation, a new redemption. Heaven is opening. God's kingdom is being ushered in at the moment of Jesus' baptism. And lastly, the voice from heaven gives us certainty of who he is. 
He is the Messiah, God's very Son. Isaiah 64.1 is the first passage that talks about the rending of heaven. The opening of heaven for the return of the Messiah. Isaiah 64.1 says, If only you would tear the heavens open and come down. And this idea of the heavens opening and the Messiah kind of coming forth is further seen in Jewish literature. In a book called T. Levi, it says, The heavens will be opened, and from the temple of glory, sanctification will come upon him with a fatherly voice, as from Abraham to Isaac, and the glory of the Most High shall burst forth upon him, and the spirit of understanding and the sanctification shall rest upon him in the water, for he shall give the majesty of the Lord to those who are his sons in truth forever. There's also other literature around this time that talks about this expectation of a Messiah and how he would be anointed by the Father and this voice would come forth. Jesus is the true king who came to redeem and to renew this world. He came to reorder this world, to cleanse it. Jesus' identity is greater. Worship team, if you could please come up. This morning, do we desire to know God, to experience God, he believe, I believe he wants to know us. I have a question that I've been pondering. Where are we with prayer and the Holy Spirit? This passage here speaks about the Holy Spirit twice and speaks about Jesus as he's praying in the water and the Spirit comes upon him. Throughout Luke and Acts, there is a strong theme of prayer and the Holy Spirit. Jesus often would withdraw to places to pray. Sometimes he would bring his disciples with him. In the book of Acts, the church would often pray together when they're going through persecution or through trouble. They would gather together and they would pray and the Spirit would move amongst them. Now, I don't know what your personal prayer life is. I don't follow you when you go home after church. That'd be really creepy and just, you know, how much are they praying? I don't, I don't know what that's like for you and your prayer life. But what does that mean? Maybe the small group you attend, what does prayer mean in that small group? Later in Luke, when Jesus goes into the temple, he's angry. Part of the reason he's angry is his temple was to be a house of prayer and to become a house of greed, of money. In the ancient world, the synagogues were so characterized by prayer that in the Greek it often just became called the place of prayer. Prayer is something that is important to God and to us. We are called to prayer. What does that look like in your life? I have grown up in church my whole life. My dad's a pastor, my brother's a pastor, my sister's a priest. I've been around church a lot. And one thing that I know talking to a lot of pastors, and myself included, I'm not, not including, my, I am including myself in this, is that prayer is often one of the weakest parts of the church. If we want to be Jesus-centered people, it's going to require prayer and opening our hearts to him. One of the most beautiful things that marked early Anabaptists was that they studied scripture together in homes and they prayed together in homes and then they went out and tried to be like Jesus in their homes, sorry, in their communities. This is a beautiful heritage and legacy of the word of prayer and being like Jesus in their communities. I think, why don't we pray? We might respond, well, maybe there's a game on tonight. Why don't we pray? Well, I just, I want to watch a movie. Why don't I pray? Well, Lord, I'm, 
this kind of, I'm kind of tired, Lord. Why don't I pray? Well, Lord, I kind of have better things to do. There are a hundred excuses not to pray. And sometimes these are valid. Sometimes we need a rest. Sometimes rest is the most spiritual thing you can do. But it becomes so easy for our prayer life to wane. I believe we can begin to lose Jesus in the midst of it. We can begin to lose our captivation of Jesus. Is Jesus greater? I believe he is, but I believe it in my heart and my soul as well, not just my mind. I hope that we would desire to know him, and to know his greatness, his goodness. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are good, Father. Lord, I pray that we would see you as greater as John the Baptist did. We would be captivated by you. We would see you of infinite worth. We thank you that you are good and that you called us into relationship with you to know you, Father. I pray that you would encourage us, strengthen us, Father, in our time of weakness. Thank you for your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.